and this is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest, Josh Kamowitz, is someone I met. Hey, Josh. <laughs> someone, I, someone I met about 10 years ago, I think, at, uh, I believe, an AMA conference. And Josh was just getting his start at Brain Juicer at the time, uh, I think, in marketing. That's right. And we got to chatting over a pint, I believe. And I learned that Josh had come into the industry after a career as a professional poker player. And so I ordered another round because then I was going to sit around for a while and I had to hear the story. And it was fascinating to hear the ins and outs and how stressful it was and all that good stuff. And in a way, that conversation was one of the inspirations for this podcast because it just always stuck with me about the fascinating people that you find in the research industry. So, uh, so I know Josh has moved on from Brain Juicer and has actually kind of moved into more of an adjacent space from market research, working in media as the SVOD for uh, SVOD lead for partner growth at Roku. SVOD, right. of course, being subscription video on demand. So, really cool stuff, and looking forward to hearing all about it. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Josh. Yeah, thanks. It's great to see you again after so long. And I didn't realize I was the inspiration for this podcast. So um, that, that's really flattering to hear and you're welcome. Uh, um, but uh, excited to be here uh, and, and catch up and chat through, um, you know, poker research uh, and Roku. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Uh, so let's let's start with the, the uh, I was going to say mundane, but I guess it's not. So Brain Juicer, now System 1. Um, how did you find your way into that space? And uh, tell us a little bit about your time in research. Uh, sure. Um, so as you mentioned, I was not a research specialist by trade, um, but I always enjoyed consumer psychology, statistics, uh, understanding human behavior. And I honestly wasn't even aware that there was an industry that did that professionally uh, right. until my then girlfriend, now wife, basically told me that I had to get a real job. Uh, you know, <laughs> the, the lifestyle of a poker player is great, but it's really taxing on relationships. And I happened to find a company called Brain Juicer that sounded really exciting. And I was there for five years. Uh, obviously, I, I found it enjoyable and, and challenging uh, in my professional life there. Uh, but like a lot of people in research, I think I stumbled into it and then have taken it with me since then, even though I'm no longer in that specific industry, but it, you know, it still underpins and fuels everything I do, or at least my worldview and, and the, the types of questions I like to ask internally and my colleagues, my clients, partners, et cetera, are all come from the days I spend at Brain Juicer. So it was happenstance that I got there in the first place, but you know, I would highly recommend that any professional finds themselves uh, stumbling into market research in some way or another, because it is super beneficial for the rest of their career. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, I think Brain Juicer at that time and, and probably still as System One doing really interesting things, finding people that that had skill sets um, and experiences that were just off the beaten track in some ways. Yeah, 100%, right? I mean, when I joined Brain Juicer, I was fortunate enough that they were looking for an intern actually at the time. Uh, and I managed to leave the company as an associate vice president uh, because the company really just for Brain Juicer specifically, uh, valued people who were challengers, who had different points of view, could draw on a previous experience that wasn't necessarily the, the traditional quantitative market research track and really pushed the boundaries as to how they built that business. Right, right, cool. And, and then tell us a little bit about the, the move then into media and what you're doing currently at Roku. Yeah, so I, I always think of it as kind of like a pipeline. If market research is insights, right? Like really the genesis of an idea, the seedling, 
the challenge with research, at least in my experience, was you never understood what happened with that idea, right? You provide the research and the insights and then a brand manager or a product manager says, thank you so much, this is super helpful. And they go off and build the work. Right. So soon after BrainJuice, I went to work for an agency mm -hmm. uh, doing more paid uh, performance media, uh, really focusing on outcomes. Uh, I discovered myself, I'm not fit for the, the media agency landscape. Um, yeah. Also had the next question, which is, okay, well, we're de delivering this campaign or this creative, but what if the product itself is the problem? Um, so I went and worked for a mobile publisher, a company called Timehop that was mobile first. Um, right. Saying, you know, uh, time, I think it was 7 million daily active users um, and helping build a, a product that could both be an ad solution. So working with advertisers to align our brand with their needs and then also yeah. running user acquisition. So doing a, a flywheel of selling media and then using that dollars to then acquire more users to grow our active account base. Um, right. there for a number of years. And then finally, uh, I kind of wanted to complete the puzzle of the entire media landscape. And now I work at the platform, uh, right? So working on the combination of ideas, publishers, but also the, the underlying, uh, you know, technology that, that fuels uh, users' ability to interact with those publishers. Yeah, and I suppose it's actually been a, a fortunate place to land during the pandemic. Yes, uh, people yeah. tend to, you know, we've seen this past year that, uh, you know, well, we always, you know, Roku, we, we say that, you know, streaming was the future period, uh, but the pandemic really helped accelerate a lot of those uh, habits. Cool, cool. All right, now, now let's, let's hear the good stuff, right? Oh. So, so <laughs> yeah. how does one decide to become a professional gambler? And, and let's hear some of your, your good stories. Matt. They make a lot of bad decisions. Um, <laughs> and they, uh, no, it's, um, so I was fortunate, you know, I think a lot of success in life is due to happenstance. And when I, when poker was becoming popular, so in the early 2000s, um, you might remember there were movies like Rounders and, you know, Chris Moneymaker won the World Series. And it was really impressive that an amateur could take on all these pros. And right. I was in high school at the time, I'm aging myself here, and we were playing literally $10 games with a bunch of buddies, right? And whoever won, we would drive to 7-Eleven, and then the winner would spend all of the money on scratch tickets until we lost. Like that was just <laughs> the, the Saturday ritual, right? And it was $10, and we all had part-time jobs at you know fast food or service joints, et cetera. Um, and that's how we spent our time and our money together. Right. Uh, but at that time, a lot of there wasn't a lot of knowledge about how the game works in terms of best practices and strategies. And slowly, my friends and I started talking about it. And I think it's really important that for anybody who wants to ever get into, I wouldn't say gambling, but poker lifestyle or anything that might be averse, like any other trade, you need to have teachers and you need to be open to learning. Right. And it was only through friends that we could bounce ideas off of each other and really question ourselves and, and take a hard look at our own decision-making because at the end of the day, poker is just about making the best decision given the circumstance and the information you have. Right. Um, helps push each other to be really successful. And some of those friends are still professional poker players. They're very, very strong players. I'm not a professional anymore. Obviously, I have a, a day job. Um, yeah. But from then, uh, you know, moved to a little bit higher stakes. And then eventually, uh, you know, the, sort of the big turning point was I was <laughs> in college in uh, Hofstra University in Long Island. And I found about an, uh, a real life uh, tournament it cost a hundred dollars, which was a lot of money at the time. Right. Um, I drove myself to Queens, uh, to Corona Queens. Um, for anybody who might be listening, you might be raising an eyebrow. Um, as <laughs> a basement poker game in Corona Queens, uh, as a 19 year old, happened to win that tournament, um, which granted me, you know, many times a hundred dollars. 
and then that really just helped take me off and so soon after that wow. i was playing every tuesday and thursday nights and then going to class wednesdays and fridays if, if i was able to um and <laughs> you know soon after that found myself in in casino settings and then online poker of course became a thing around the same time too so between about 2000 and four to 2010 there you couldn't you know bat an eye in new york without stumbling upon a poker club and it was a really good time for um for people who knew what they were doing wow wow now i remember when we talked about this before i remember you talked about how stressful it was at at times so tell us a little bit about that yeah sure i mean so the stress can be i'm trying to think of the best way to answer this it can be manifested in a couple of different ways there's the stress in the game itself Right. Mm -hmm. So I talked about making the best decision and it's really challenging to face consequences for your decisions immediately. Right. Most of the time right. when we make decisions in life, we don't necessarily know if they're good or bad. We, we try to think they're the best decisions, but you don't have a way to say, yes, you win or you lose based off of what you just did. Right. Um, poker, you have to be on your game all the time. You have to be making mm -hmm. the right decision. And what's really stressful is that often that right decision sometimes has negative outcomes. Right. You might have the best of it going into a situation and then because it is a form of gambling, you can still get unlucky. And so that right. can become really stressful and it's really challenging um, to continue the mental fortitude, to continue to make the right decisions, even if the short-term results just continue to pound you in the face and try to convince you that you don't know what you're doing. So there's certainly that element of stress. And then on, as I mentioned, on, on relationships and family, uh, you know, nobody wants to be friends with the person that has gone all night and sleeps all day. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I try to set up good rules for myself of, you know, um, if I, if I won money, I pocket it in the bank. If I lost money, I always go and take myself out something nice. Uh, just kind of remind myself of, of, you know, worldly pleasures. Uh, you know, yeah. don't take, don't take work home with you, right? That's a lesson for a work stress home with you. That's a lesson for anybody. Um, but especially with poker, cause not many jobs you go to and walk out with less money than you started your day with. Um, right. It's kind of the opposite yeah. of a sound job. Um, so there's certainly a lot of stressful elements then. And then the third element would certainly be the people you play against. Uh, you know, they, they range in, in, in walks of life and not everybody really enjoys losing money. And there yeah. can be situations where it can get, um, I don't want to say scary, but you just have to keep your wits about you in terms of, you know, not poking the bear. Um, for yeah. People that might, uh, you know, have more of a, uh, an anger problem or, or deal with stress in a more visceral way. Yeah, I suppose, especially with some of the basement games, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I've moved on from that. I'm, I'm playing much more established locations now, and that's less of a problem. Okay. So do you still dabble at all? or is it uh, I do. It's uh, purely a hobby. Um, I took about, I want to say about five years off without playing at all, and then found myself, you know, uh, able to go back to it. You know, a lot of people used to ask, like, why don't you play for, for fun? And I would turn it back to anybody who's working and say, you know, do you do your job for fun on the weekends? <laughs> but I've, I've been able yeah. to move past that mentality and now it is fun and I can go down and hang out with some friends and see a lot of the old faces and because it is all the same people when I go to a game and yeah. you know, have a good time and, and, you know, largely still win. But if I lose, I lose and, you know, hope, hope to, for the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things when we talked, one of the things that kind of struck me was, uh, was how natural then it seemed based on, um, uh, your experience gambling and what you learned along the way, uh, how well it translated actually to, to the world of insights and maybe business more broadly. Yeah. Can you talk about some of the lessons that you took with you from that experience into your professional life? 
Sure. Um, so people ask me, like, you know, a lot of people say, like, do you have a good poker face? And that's none of it, right? Like, yeah. it's really none of it. Um, the success in poker is due to a couple of things. The first one is pattern recognition and understanding what people do and what they're likely to do in a certain situation. And I can't right. think of an industry that exemplifies that more than insights, right? Yeah. Trying to understand what people are going to do before they do it based off of yeah. people similar to them or decisions that that person has made thus far. Right. Um, so an example would be, you know, often if you look back at old movies, right, you watch Maverick or any of these other old poker movies, there's always a professional that tries to put somebody on a hand, right? They're always like, you have this specific hand. That is very inaccurate as to how poker is played. It's all right. about ranges, right? So saying, okay, you have these set of cards, you could have an infinite number of possibilities, but given the circumstances, it's more likely that you have these hands. And as you get more and more information, that range becomes more and more narrow and you're able to drill down and finally understand exactly what that person is doing in that circumstance. Right. And being able to take that knowledge and then apply it to research and the types of questions that research asks or design, like product design and trying to figure out how we're gonna nudge somebody to take a specific action or business and you're thinking about a negotiation, you're working on a contract or a deal and trying to understand the other person's point of view and what they're trying to get out of this deal. Right. Um, I, I can't think of a better launch pad for that type of learning than dealing with the consequences that I mentioned immediately. Yeah, uh, that, that's a big one. And then I would say separately, um, things like emotional control, delivering bad news, delivering bad news to yourself, right? <laughs> yeah. I firmly remember from research days, the challenge was always like, uh oh, the results aren't great. How are we going to package this up, right? right. Being right. honest, and talking about the circumstance and the context and helping to understand like, here, it's not bad news, it's opportunity for improvement, right? There's yeah. always something to take away from this and something to be learned and then how we can improve, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're studying that day moving forward. Right, right. Cool. All right. So you've, you've since moved on from insights, although, you know, but as you yeah, said, right. it's still, still related and relevant. Do you have any reflections on your insights days now that you are more on the. Yeah. I, I, I feel that market research is still an underappreciated industry yeah. uh, in terms of its contribution to decision-making. Um, right. And as I mentioned, I'm no longer in insights, but I still work very, very closely with our research team, uh, whether it's the consumer insights, the brand insights, the ad research teams. Um, I'm always asking them to validate as well as help me ideate. Um, right. And, but it's, it is startling to not be so in the in insights world and to see how many decisions are still being made through gut or right. you know, previous experience without that necessary step to go in and, and validate or, or to help ideate, as I mentioned. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I, I have moved on from a, you know, it's not my day job anymore, um, but like I said, I, I take it with me all the time and, and highly recommend anybody uh, in any position at least finds the research contact within their company makes best friends with them and then studies all the decks and existing research and helps have a, a hand in terms of what they wanna learn more about next. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. That's, that's great to hear. That's great to hear. Um, so this is a podcast, right? So um, curious to know if there are other podcasts or maybe uh, other media, whatever the format may be um, that you find inspiring or uh, informative or enjoyable these days, other personally or professionally. Sure. Um, so I work in streaming, right? So I'm very familiar with all the streaming services. Um, I, I, there's been a, a huge rise of sort of infotainment the last number of years, whether it's podcasts or, or short form documentaries. I watch a lot of documentaries 
uh, on YouTube. Uh, it's kind of my, my passion play there. Um, right. In terms of what I'm reading these days, I'm, I have a 17 month old daughter. Uh, so I spend <laughs> a lot of my time reading the same three books over and over again, right? Of course she likes Chicka Chicka Boom Boom and Goodnight Moon. Um, and then personally- Carl, rest in peace, of course. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, that's right. Um, and then personally, I'm halfway through um, the trilogy for The Three Body Problem, which is a uh, Chinese authored science fiction story about what if uh, what if we made contact with aliens, but it's a, it's a hard sci-fi, so those aliens aren't on their way for 500 years, right? We've, we've seen them, we've made contact, but how does humanity wrestle with this concept of we have connection, but we haven't actually, nobody around, nobody's gonna be around to actually interact with these. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's very, it's very um, you know, it's an it's a interesting look at how humans of all different colors would react to that type of information. Yeah, None of those are necessarily related to professionalism, right? Or sort of like business books. Um, but those are what I'm consuming my time with now, especially under work from home. You know, when I log off, I try to log off uh, officially. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, uh, as I mentioned, you know, when it comes to the Wiggles, because I know that you're uh, <laughs> right. listening to a lot of Wiggles. A lot of the Wiggles exist. <laughs> yeah, Wiggle Bay. Wiggle Bay is is the all time classic in in my book, but uh, you know, that's. You know, could be debatable. We'll get my daughter started on, on Wiggle Bay. <laughs> you got to do it. Okay, Josh. So this is the Rock and Roll Research Podcast, right? It's rock and roll after all. So uh, I know you said you're not a music guy, but you've got to have some music in your bones somewhere. So we got to get it out of you. I have to know the answer to this question. So you're stranded on a desert island. You have three records uh, or maybe three bands, whatever the case mm. uh, at your disposal to keep you company for the rest of your days. That's all you got. But but it's of your choosing. What what are those records or, or artists? Uh, it's really tough. As you said, I'm not musically inclined in the sense that I'm woefully bad with artists, albums, and song recognition. I, I certainly like a lot of music, but I'm just terrible at recalling it. So these are going to date myself in terms of these are music that I started liking probably a long time ago. But you know, sure. they're 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 in here. Um, so the first one has to be Tom Waits' Small Change album. Which yes. Is my, yes. I, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Tom Waits album. I have to give that to Rain Dogs, but Small Change, I remember hearing this for the first time and just blowing my mind. Like, yeah. just turned me on to an entire genre. And, and someone I, if I was ever to be able to go see anybody in concert, I don't even think he still performs. I tried many years I think ago. He does from time to time. It's hard. It's, it's time to time. Like it's often in Southern, it's often like in this Tennessee and like some, you know, honky tonk somewhere. It's really hard. He's never coming to Madison Square Garden. Um, but it would be Tom White's Small Change. So that's number one. Number two, oh, it's so, so trite. It's got to be Radiohead, OK Computer. I think it's just like, it just has to be right. I mean, I'm gonna be on the desert island. I'm gonna embrace be, it, man. Just I'm gonna be I'm gonna be moping around, so like I might as well have something to keep me company there. And then the third one is more recent find, but I've been like trying to you know relax, chill out more. Um, so there's a Ethiopian jazz musician named Mulata Estatke, and he has an album uh, called Ethiopic that's just it's like a beautiful Zen type album. So again, if I'm on a desert island, I want to feel angsty and grungy, mopey, and then relax at the end of the day. So I, I'd have to bring those three albums with me and, and hope to God that there's a record player or something otherwise <laughs> staring at album art um, for all eternity. It's got, it's got to be on vinyl. Uh, it's got, these it's are my rules, so that's, Of course, <laughs> watch out for the sand, but other than that, we're good. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, I love it, I love it. And uh, I would love to, to uh, get a link to that jazz artist. You yeah, for sure. To check that out, so 
Excellent. This has been a great conversation. I've been wanting to reconnect with you on this topic for, for so long. Uh, so I'm really thankful that we finally had the time. Looking forward to seeing you maybe next time I come to the city. Sounds so uh, thanks so much, Josh. Rock and roll. Thank you. Thank you.